Hello and welcome to the third segment on uh, Kazakhstan. That's what we're discussing in this uh, edition of On the Barricades, which is your favorite political show on the internet produced by the Eastern European lefties. We are journalists, we are academics, we're activists, and we bring uh, the most insightful comments for you about Eastern Europe or about our region or about global affairs uh, from an Eastern European leftist perspective. Here we are. My name is Bojan Stanislavski. I'm the host of the program and the co-host of the program is Maria Cernat, uh, my colleague from Romania. Welcome to the third segment of our show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Right. And... Uh, well, let's let's just continue where we where we dropped it, uh, and and go through uh, the most uh, the the biggest turmoil in in Kazakhstan, which is the fourth, the fifth, and the sixth of January, <clears throat> and and we uh, we concluded that pretty much uh, during the night between the fourth and the fifth of January, the situation went under the control uh, i mean became controllable by uh b- by the security forces uh, including the army uh and and the police uh <clears throat> that is the kazakhstani police and the kazakhstani uh, army because later on we had like international developments we're going to get to that and now the question is what actually happened then what happened after uh, that that uh that initial clash in almaty in particular occurred and was brought uh, brought under control. Now, there are speculations here, and we cannot be sure, and we will probably never know for sure, or n- not in, in, in the coming, I don't know, couple of years, but it seems like this is the moment where this bureaucratic power struggle, dispute, whatever, between... Uh, 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 between the former leader, top leader of Kazakhstan, Nursultan Nazarbayev, and Kasim Jomar Tokayev, the current president, kicks in. It seems like, or there, at least there are explanations, interpretations, and analysis in many media, including the you know, independent, let's call it media. I mean, I'm talking about bloggers here and, and people who are specialists in international relations in, in, in Russia who are not linked in any direct manner to any media that are controlled by the Kremlin to whatever extent, you know, that are presenting the interpretation that it could, this is precisely the moment when Tokayev thought that it's the moment to get rid of, of, of the old man. In a sense that he would allow, you know, those clashes to actually go on for some time in order to justify you know the, the the sort of the removal of the entire formal apparatus including removal of uh nur sultan nazarbayev as the head of the security council and you know he dismissed the government and everything he basically fired everyone right and yes, to yes. assert himself as the person that is in control and that has to be in control including some dictatorial measures maybe because there's this chaos in the country you know so uh, perhaps it is the case that the after the initial crackdown, actually it was uh, the, the reaction of the authorities was softened in order to maybe encourage you know the the uh, um, uh, the leaders of that uh, you know violent groups that were actually causing the clashes and looting and destroying you know uh, uh, cars and, and and all kinds of other. Uh, <clears throat> Well, property, property and, yes. and to make it to make it look like you know the Maidan, you know, to make it look like it it, it, uh, it happened in 2014 in uh, Ukraine. So uh, that's that's 
the scenario that might have played itself out. And I think if this is the case, then, you know, this gives us, um, uh, uh, this produces the incentive to think that this might have been coordinated on a larger scale. That is, you know, a lot of diplomatic uh, activity must have gone on. Okay, I mean, I'm sure that during uh, the the initial phase of the protest and and later when it erupted on the 4th, there must have been discussions between Putin and Nazarbayev, Putin and Tokayev. And I'm sure the Chinese weighed in as well, although the Chinese do recognize this sphere of Central Asia. uh, You know, they, they, they still perceive it as not exactly their sphere of influence, that they are guests there, that they are kind of allowed by the Russians to have their investments there and stuff like that. But mm-hmm, they find mm-hmm. it to be rather the courtyard of the uh, of the <clears throat> Russians. However, they are very concerned about what's going on in, in Kazakhstan, especially when the rumors were thrown into the public space that some jihadi groups could be behind it. Because guess what? China's border with Kazakhstan is also the chi- is the border between Kazakhstan and a certain province, which name I'm not going to pronounce because YouTube obviously has some problems with it. So a certain province that has made the headlines recently very, you know, uh, very intensely. With a certain minority that is with, very... Exactly, exactly, exactly. With a certain minority that has this kind of, you know... <laughs> Uh, so, so they were they became very concerned about this also, and they, they I'm sure there was this hotline being very hot, you know, over those uh, last week between Beijing and Moscow and Moscow and Almaty or whatever New Sultan and stuff like that. So, uh, I think that it is. Um, with the blessing, maybe, or with the acceptance of Moscow to actually go a little further, let it let it spread. And, you know, the, the blockade of the internet, that was very important. That was crucial because, you see, those groups that stage color revolutions, this is how they communicate. I mean, you know, particularly in a country like Kazakhstan or Belarus, like where the media is controlled, okay, to the extent mm-hmm. that you cannot mm-hmm. really mm-hmm. have independent, uh, not genuine independent criticism of the government. So, you know, they couldn't, they wouldn't be able to use the mainstream media. So they use all these sort of, you know, Telegram channels and stuff like that that are, and this is the, the the element of credibility in this Russian whatever narrative about it, is that those channels are normally based out from other countries, like the Nexta channel, which played a major role in the <clears throat> uh, in the disruption uh, in, in in Belarus, is based out of Poland, right? So uh, th- this was very important to, to to sort of take down the internet in order to uh, not to allow those people that were leaders of that violent elements, uh, violent groups, to allow them to realize that there actually could be some sort of game on the part of the establishment uh, in Kazakhstan. So to, to, to believe, to lead them to believe that this is uh, yet another repression, that now they are really scared and they are taking down the internet in order, and, and that it's a moment for them to, you know, to push for it again. And that's why I believe the clashes actually erupted again on the 5th, you know, and they mm-hmm, continued mm-hmm. to the 6th. And then we had all this theater, right, with the uh, with the appeal to the CSTO uh, and, and, you know, the Russian troops arriving. Not only Russian, by the way. Of course, the theater is like, first it was this Nikol Pashinyan, the Armenian prime minister who reply, responded to that in order to create the impression that it's international. You know, yeah, of course, of course. And, and, and then there were the like the, the 5,000 Russian troops in it and, and stuff like that. And of course, the Russian troops, they didn't do anything really. And c- kind of think about it, okay? I, I'm, I'm kind of uh, 
maybe uh, sort of inclined to think more about it in the sense that, you know, my, my father was in the military and he's a former, off, you know, retired officer and stuff like that. But I know something like about how military actions are conducted. And, you know, 5,000 troops. And by the way, some, some, some sources reported that it was only 2,000 troops from Russia. Even, you know, with the Kazakh Kyrgyz, uh, uh, Kyrgyz, I'm not sure what the adjective, proper adjective is, like army from Kyrgyzstan, troops from Kyrgyzstan and troops from Uzbekistan and troops from Armenia, you know, like it was a couple of thousand, uh, couple of thousand troops. How is couple of thousand of troops really going to make a change in a country that vast? Like you really need more. And and th- this was like pretty theatrical in the sense that those troops would be positioned to guard, you know, some some institutions. Like you know, th- they put them in a place where they can easily be seen and spotted by the media, so to create an impression that there's this major crackdown going on, that it's done, it's over, and so on and so forth. And you know, again, the element of truth, like regardless of you know, you you can perceive it as Russian propaganda, stuff, but it's true. This is exactly what happened. I mean, this was a theater. Kasim Tokayev, in a theatrical manner, but actually doing this, asserting himself as the leader in accordance with Russia, in accordance with China, in accordance with other CSTO countries, and making sure that the so-called international community understands that it's over. Whatever you had ever had in mind about color revolutions, not now, but maybe 10 years from now, because the contradictions in, in Kazakhstan, they, they continue, okay? Those that we spoke about in the first part. And whatever you thought about it, like, you, you know, uh, in 10 years' time, in 20 years' time, it's over, guys. And now Tokayev, because of all those convoluted arrangements that occurred um, last week, you know, he is not only the leader, the supreme leader, so to say, okay? Uh, he, he's not only that. He is also now, you know, totally, fully, absolutely and utterly dependent on Russia. I mean, the West is, you know, whatever they had in their minds, whenever they planned anything, if they did, it's over. Forget about it, right? So now, you know, I think for Russia, it was also kind of, it could have been kind of important. And if the West really inspired or had their hand properly in this in this business of of, of rioting and d- destroying property and and vandalizing uh, cities in Kazakhstan, they really, you know, they just I, I don't know what happened to their strategies. But guys, you've lost everything now. Instead of actually pulling whatever Tokayev or or, or uh, uh, Nazarbayev, you know, out of the sphere of influence of the Russians, what you did is you made them hug even even more intensely. It was the same with Lukashenko. You tried this, guys, and it kind of didn't work. Like now, you know, Lukashenko, the leader who used to maneuver between the West and the East or between the West and Russia, you know, trying to find the most comfortable place for himself... Okay, now he's fully in, in uh, under Russia's control, and and you know I wouldn't be surprised. By the way, I wouldn't be surprised if this uh, uh, Commonwealth or or this kind of uh, uh, joint state that they are building, like Russia and Belarus, that it could be joined in under twenty years time or fifteen years time by Kazakhstan. And I will tell you why, because this is probably one of the ways 
that uh, the Russians and the Chinese and the Kazakhstani elite are thinking that it could actually resolve those contradictions that are in place in Kazakhstan right now. So regardless of what you think about this kind of unity or commonwealth that Russia is building around them, it could actually be healthy. And I'm not defending it as any kind of you know geopolitical um, uh, development in a sense that I don't know whether it's good or bad. I'm not sure whether it's good or bad or whether, uh, uh, whether it's going to play itself out positively or negatively for Kazakhstan. But I'm saying that it is a possibility that seems to occur or, or that it is an option that seems to occur as a possibility out of the whole thing that that happened over the last week in Kazakhstan so uh again you see that now Tokayev is the leader and now that and that Tokayev is in control and that he's not he's actually making you know the speech that he gave after the whole thing was, you know, basically uh, under full control, whether it was staged or not staged, whatever, like, you know, when he, he appeared on the television to address the nation, he said not just that. By the way, he spoke in Russian, just for the people to understand that. <laughs> It's like he spoke to the nation in Russian, and uh, and he said that yeah, of course, law and order, and and you know, and he spoke about those gangsters from abroad and so on and so forth. But then he also made some other points. He said that it's time to begin a, a, a major transition, transformation, reform in Kazakhstan. That it cannot last. You know, the the model that they well, he didn't use those words. I'm paraphrasing now, but the model that they've had in place is obviously out of use anymore. I mean, it's not useful for anyone. And that, you know, and he made some very, you know, interesting uh, sort of uh, 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 conclusions, okay, that now Kazakhstan has to uh, do away with all kinds of identity. Well, he didn't say identity politics, but that's essentially what he was referring to. Identity politics in terms of Kazakhstanian, Kazakhstani identity and, you know, history and, and stuff like that. No, we have to do away with that. And we have to focus on the future, and the future are high technologies and 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 you know important education and and so on and so forth. And he already announced that three universities from abroad are opening their branches in Kazakhstan, where they are going to teach engineering, IT, and stuff like that. From so abroad, you, you meaning where? Exactly. From Russia mostly, but also from China. <clears throat> so. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah. So they want to develop some sort of a, of an international collaboration with Russia and uh, and China. I, I think I don't. Um, I think this is a little bit optimistic on on his part. I think this is really the situation and what happened that basically Tokai took the opportunity to get rid of Nazarbayev with the help of the Russians. That was and with the help of the West, in a sense. Like the West, the West was trying something or testing out something. And he thought, okay, guys, you're in, you're stupid. Let me use it for the, you know, for the sake of whatever I have in mind, right? Yes, this is very uh, probable that he used the violence to get rid of Nazarbayev and to assert himself as a leader with the support of the Russians. And the idea is here that, Unfortunately, seeing the foreign investment, you know, map coming back to the money again and who owns basically the... Because they have all these resources, but they do not exploit them for the sense. It is the curse of the resources that every kind of every city faces, yes, every right. city, every country faces. When they have a lot of resources, it is very difficult to assert yourself as a power and to exploit for yourself and to for the benefit of your citizens. Yeah, because you suddenly need democracy. Yes. <laughs> 
Yes, because uh, as a joke went, the United States discovered a dictator uh, above um, a lot of um, oil, you know, fields, yeah. and they discovered the dictator there, so they had to intervene. Yeah. Apart from that, of course, this is not only the, uh, the the Dutch, I mean, and Chevron and others. Of course, they are the and they take always the the lion's share. But also Russia, China, these are important states, and it's very difficult for Kazakhstan to stay out of their influence. And let's not be children here. Of course, if they, they go there, they're not going to be so thrilled with the idea, you know, of building a democratic state with all the resources being uh, used for the benefit of the Kazakhstani citizens. No, it is a very tough game where the Kazakhstan has to stay afloat in a very volatile situation where they have a lot of resources, a lot of very, very powerful um, neighbors like China and Russia and the United States wanting to get their hands on that resources. So it will be a very difficult situation, I would say, for for and also I would like to say that for the viewers if they want to say and to see further about all these companies that are very important Al Jazeera realized uh, produced a very uh, very informative seven hour documentaries uh, documentary called The Secret of the Seven Sisters and it is about the major oil companies and how, shared, how they share their spheres of influence because this is money talking besides that and politically what i see now that politically it may be clear that uh tokayev is with china but from the investment perspective you know he's not that's, the, that's true the that's true is marketing dominated by <clears throat> netherlands and the united states yeah well I, I also want to say that this uh picture that we showed in the first part of our program uh you know sort of uh, displaying the investments in a graphical manner uh, was, I think, from 2018, and the, the investment balance shifted towards uh, from that uh, from then shifted slightly towards China. I mean, there are more Chinese uh, <coughs> investments there. By the way, that's another reason why China was very interested in actually resolving the conflict pretty fast mm -hmm. because they don't want their investments to be volatile or or, or, or kind of uh, vulnerable to whatever other <coughs> factors, particularly violent factors, and so on and so forth. Also, I want to add that it, well, look. Every person that is interested to to a serious extent in politics, they know that there are the, the metropolis and there is the periphery. I mean, it doesn't, it, it hardly ever works like that. Or if it does, <clears throat> particularly in the order that we have today, regardless of what we think about international capitalism and stuff like that, I'm very hateful of international and national capitalism, as people know probably. But uh, it's, it's just the situation is that you cannot have, you know, you, you cannot have a country like Kazakhstan, for example, or Belarus, for that matter, or Ukraine, for that matter, that is, you know, in direct proximity to Russia, that means a lot to Russia historically and in terms of national security, currently, uh, current national security arrangements, that, that will, you know, suddenly go and, and join the EU, NATO, or anything like that. And that's why... You know, it's very strange for me to hear people, intelligent people oftentimes, by the way, you know, who would, uh, left-wing even, who, who would argue... Uh, for example, uh, against the uh, the Russia's red lines that were, uh, you know, proposed in uh, in 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 December, that were argue against them, saying that no, no, but well, it's 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 Ukraine or or Ukraine's choice or Georgia's choice whether they want to join NATO or not. Like, come on, I mean, what are you really talking about? Yeah. You know, 
Yeah, of course, of course, it is the, like of course it is their choice. But but you know there are you don't make a choice in a vacuum, right? Like you make a choice in a given and concrete circumstances that you cannot just ignore. And this is what I want to say, know, like guys, there is reality. There are choices. Yeah, there are choices and there are thoughts and there are, you know, visions and stuff like that. And I also have great visions about socialism, international socialism, international cooperation, stuff like that. But hello, there is reality that is here and now. And you have to act within the reality that is here and now. And you cannot just uh, uh, ignore it and wait until the, for the right moment in history to project your thoughts onto the world and onto the reality. This is not how it works. Karl Marx said it long ago. It's the reality that determines your thoughts and your your consciousness, not the other way around. If you claim that it's the other way around, you're living in a, some kind of right-wing science fiction. That's the case. There's no, uh, There are no exceptions from this rule. So I, I, I just want to say that, uh, you know, whatever happened, uh, whatever was in the... In, the bottom line of, of, of what what actually was happening on the 5th and the 6th of, of uh, January in Kazakhstan, I think this is at least, and we could agree on that, I suppose, even with our adversaries, okay, uh, ideologically and, and, and in whatever other manner, that this was at least, it was logical. It just had to happen. I mean, I, I just don't quite see how anything else would have come up. Maybe it you know, we could discuss over the technicalities whether this is so much violence was was necessary or whether whatever the in, the international intervention was. I I don't know. Like we can discuss about those qual- quantitative elements, but the, in terms of quality, this is the process that just had to play itself out in the circumstances that we have. And I think that it was a major victory for Russia geopolitically, if you like speaking, in terms of international relations. Because if the West have had has had any hand in this in a serious manner, then the West has allowed Russia to project its power onto other country in a very direct military manner and it also allowed Russia to sort of you know prove before the talk began the talks began yesterday or the day before yesterday I mean the the um, Russian American talks in Geneva before you know it, it allowed Russia to show hey guys when we mean when we say that we're going to react militarily to your provocations like if NATO is expanded or anything we mean it like you know the fresh example is Kazakhstan. So uh, I think uh, it, it also has to be viewed in a certain context. But what I want to uh, s- sort of switch gears uh, now to is uh, the question of, of how the media reacted to that. Because mm-hmm. I, I really think it's rather exceptional on many levels. And I would like you, perhaps, Maria, to elaborate by starting to uh, by briefly describing how, pe- how the media reacted in Eastern Europe, which is where we were based, and in Romania, perhaps, where, where, where you live? Well, I'm very... I'm not surprised at all, because whenever there is an uprising uh, in a post-Soviet state, the simple narrative that the media, media conveys is that we have very pure people with very with a thirst for democracy that are being repressed by uh, foreign countries and especially by Russia that wants to put there some dictators that are terrible for the people and so on and so forth. When it it is good for the West to pursue such a narrative, you would see also Romanian press also presenting kind of narrative. And also what is also very interesting here is that 
when you had uprisings in Kazakhstan and Tony Blair was there, you didn't hear much in the Romanian press about some people that wanted, you know, freedom. Freedom and democracy are just useful words to advance a geopolitical agenda, unfortunately. They mean almost nothing and they mean some sort of veil under which you can cloak other intentions, you know. And it is so sad to see that basically the Romanian, the Romanian media is still falling from that for that. We didn't have reporters on the ground. We didn't have people trying to ask persons that actually live there here what's going on there trying to send somebody some friends i mean you can find people i'm friends with uh, with a feminist from kyrgyzstan i can reach out to, to her when somebody something happens in that country and if me you know i'm not working for a major media network i am not uh, such a powerful media personality you know with uh, thousands of contacts and i could i think i could find some contacts there why don't you give them a voice why don't you discuss with people there because this is what journalists are supposed to do and we did our best we try to read also what the russians say what the u.s media is saying and try to come up with the balanced perspective without taking any sides and trying to work our way through but when you're a mainstream media platform you have money financial support you have contacts uh, and it is so much easier for you to get in contact with people there that would present uh, a viable and uh, uh, a serious analysis. Yeah, but you gotta want it. But you gotta want it, of course, because it is so much easier to just regurgitate and just re-churn, you know? The, yeah, the be stenographers with power. That's, that's <laughs> Exactly, exactly. And I saw also some... Uh, persons from Romania that actually wanted to form a political party and that considered themselves left-wing that chew this narrative. And I find it very, very problematic, you know. Uh, and uh, to present things that are so complicated. You presented the informal clans that have an interest there, China that has an interest, Russia. Then this conflict between Nazarbayev and Tokayev. So you have a very complex situation there. And you present it like in this simple narrative that you have the freedom, you know, thirsty people fighting with the ugly dictator and cruel dictator. This is so stupid. And I think the left should develop an organ for a more detailed discussion on international affairs because otherwise oh. we are just fighting <laughs> over words should we the right comrades or comrade x with an x yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah well that's the, the, and when yeah, it course. comes to such an important thing i mean yeah. three thousand people were detained 12 people died oh, I think I mean, these are serious uh, you know events taking place we look what the New York Times is saying, and then we share the we shared it. Yeah, but but I will, I will tell you even more. Like what is really irritating about uh, the Eastern European left, and not only perhaps about the Eastern European left. I mean this this type of mentality, but this this manifestation of it is particularly uh, uh, annoying to me. Is that they never produce things by themselves, or they never reach out to the to mm -hmm. I don't know experts or, or 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 analysts or people whom they trust in their opinions or analysis from around our region. They never do that. They wait for the Westerners to come up with the explanation that they, afterwards they could share on Facebook. 
I mean, this is this is really insane. It, it's talking. It speaks to a complete and utter lack of spine. You know, when you have to wait for the Americans, for the French, for the British, or for whatever to produce something that you will agree with, and you will go like, "Oh, those." Well, I mean, they don't write it, but this is the message that it is being conveyed: that the smart Americans, smart Canadians, smart French, smart British, smart Germans, smart Austrians, they tell us <laughs> what it is like. Exactly, exactly. And if they, if they, if they happen to uh, contradict the mainstream narrative to even you know in the slightest they 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 get praised for their bravery for their insightfulness and so on and so forth so this is this is something that is extremely irritating and you know the fact that you know the 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 internet well the eastern european left has by and large accepted you know this demonization of russia they never go to to, to read the russian media okay regardless of whether they are controlled by the state or controlled by the kremlin or whatever Like, just go and read what the Russians have to say about it. And also, you know, in this particular case, I think, you know, this is very useful to read the press, okay, that is available or whatever, uh, uh, the electronic media that are available in Russian that that, that are based uh, in those countries, in the respective countries like Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, Armenia, and so on and so forth, just to see what they are. And also the Chinese media. The Chinese media are also available. Many of them are available in English. And even if you don't like the Communist Party of China, why don't you just... Take some time, you know, off reading New York Times, Washington Post, or other platforms like that, and read the Global Times, which is, you know, one of the most important Chinese platform in English delivered, uh, you know, to the public opinion. Just see what they have to say about certain things. So... <clears throat> This is this is something no, that speaks to the political culture also that this speaks a lot also on the political culture and it is such a, a decay of that such yeah. a decay there is no yeah. respect for the idea that you have to listen to everybody I told you that the head actually of the international affairs and political science department in the Romanian Academy gave a lecture to a conference that I must organize where he said that basically we have a problem in Europe with pluralism, exactly with the fact that we are prone to listen to everybody. And this is a bad thing. In this is a problem. Opinion. Yeah, well, of course. This is a problem because look in Russia, we cannot do to Russia what Russia can do to us as Europeans exactly for that. Because you see, now you have all these leftists, you have all these perspectivists, you have all this uh, democracy, you know, fans that say that you have to listen to everybody. While in Russia, because they are authoritarian, you see how good things are, because we cannot do that to them, because look, they are authoritarian. And, and it is and a criticism this... of Russia, you know. It seems amazing. Like, yeah, That's amazing. amazing. <laughs> this is unbelievable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But this is amazing. Repeating twice this idea. But and this is contradicting the reality directly. Like to speak such to, to speak in such terms about Russia, which is a country that has no soft power whatsoever to project internationally. Like really none. Yes, I, or at least have, I mean it might have, have some instruments, but it's not they using have it. And they have, but they don't they don't have, should I say, intelligent and efficient one. They yeah, they don't have, in my opinion, they, internationally speaking, propaganda. they have no, no soft power. In, internally yeah, speaking, yes. They are lame. In, internally in speaking, yes. But, but outside they, they can compete with the Americans with the West in terms of yeah. intelligent people, culture, not, nevertheless, uh, novels, you name it, writers, musicians. In yeah, terms of propaganda, they are... Yeah. <laughs> 
Lay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, no, I, I gotta say here, I gotta say here that they also have now, and we can see that that in terms of politics and so on and so forth. I mean, the Russians obviously have somewhat smarter people running the show, which you can see by how you know, but by, by even the approach uh, to the to the talks that are in place that are still you know <clears throat> while we record this video are, are uh, happening in Geneva. But anyway, this is this is a little bit out of the of what, what I intended to discuss at the end of this uh, uh, at the end of this segment. I just want to say. Uh, in addition to everything that you said about the media and their reaction is that that that's true but except for that i noticed at least by you know studying it extensively uh all the, the reactions on afghanistan oh sorry on kazakhstan, kazakhstan. Uh, is that they were pretty confused you know i mean they were pretty, they didn't exactly know what to write and i th that that's what makes me think that perhaps this was either some kind of very uncoordinated Western thing that happened there, or maybe the West just was trying to experiment with how prepared people are to actually stage a, rev a color revolution or, or you, you know, whatever. But they were not in charge, really, you know, because had they been in charge, it would have been all over the place, 24-7, all the time, you know, uh, sort of beating the drum of democracy, you know, human rights in Kazakhstan. And they were... They did not know how to react to that entire. Uh, and like, there is another know. part. I think also the Chevron and the, the Dutch Shell. They don't want you know too much. You know, and they tried yeah. something. They see it didn't work. Now let's keep things. Uh, you know, running. Let's move on. Yeah. And uh, let's move on because you know the dollars have to flow, and we don't want things to get out of hand because we are satisfied with the lion's share that we have in foreign investment, and we have our hands so deep into the pockets mm -hmm. of you know Kazakhstani people by exploiting their resources that we don't want too much trouble because who knows what might happen mm -hmm. maybe some real protest <laughs> might occur and uh, because i understood from um uh, a journalist and a friend that they have a workforce that is not so obedient and you could expect that at oh, yeah. some point they they might uh, actually stage a real protest and that would not be good for business isn't it no no that will not be good but but what i think is also important to sort of stress here is that kazakhstan has been pre presented okay as a success story in general like you know, out of all the post-Soviet uh, states, and I think I think that you know, despite this turmoil that occurred there uh, last week, it will probably continue to be to some extent a success story, and there is a foundation to interpreting it that way. Uh, despite you know, certain left is going to tell you that this is just you know, like the end of the world, total you know, absolute poverty, and people live in below any kind of standards. That's, I mean, there are no indications of, of, of you know, mass poverty and failed state, statehood, uh, you know, in uh, in Kazakhstan, at least, you know, in comparison to other <clears throat> republics. Uh, by having said that, I'm not trying to defend the, the, the Kazakhstani authorities. It's not the purpose. What I, uh, it's not the purpose for me saying that. W what I want to say is that probably, despite what happened, uh, uh, Kazakhstan is going to remain better off than many post-Soviet states with with rather solid, uh, you know, institutions or institutional order and with rather solid uh, uh, understanding and perception of who is in charge and rather solid uh, international connections, inclinations and arrangements. And, uh, you know, perhaps now, 
things are going to get better. And this is, of course, a speculation, but they might start getting better because what also prompted the protests, part of the thing that prompted the protests uh, on January 2nd was that, you know, it was a bit of a, a bit of a straw that broke the camel's back in a sense that despite the fact that the LNG gas was so cheap, it was very irritating and annoying to people because they were actually suffering for the last five years, <coughs> sorry, for the last five, six years, because what actually brought the standards down heavily in Kazakhstan was a crisis that occurred there and in other oil exporting countries. When the prices many... went down. Exactly, exactly. Uh, 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 when the prices of oil went down in 2015. And then I don't want to go now into the reasons why it all happened, because that's that's a whole other show. But anyway, it, 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 it the protests in the beginning were legitimate. There, the developments after those protests, okay, that's something that is suspicious. And that's something that we speculated about in this segment in, and in the previous two segments. And I sincerely hope that, you know, this was uh, this was something useful and and interesting for uh, our audience and for the audience of the analysis news, which is predominantly Canadian and American. And we will continue to uh, to present our analysis uh, from and about Eastern Europe, and also about some major international events that affect uh, in major ways the situation in our region. So I want to thank you, uh, all of the listeners and all of the people that had the patience to <clears throat> watch the three segments. Uh, I definitely hope it was worth it. If you think it was, please go to our Patreon page and to the extent that you feel you can afford, make a subscription. Uh, that's uh, going to help us a lot. We depend to a large extent on grassroots funding. Please go to our Substack uh, thebarricade.substack.com where you can subscribe uh, to our newsletter so you don't miss out on our articles and on our uh, video programs. And uh, of course, go to uh, the respective page websites of uh, you know the, the partnership that, that, that we're having here between uh, the barricade and the analysis.com. Uh, sorry, uh, analysis.news. So exactly. So go to the analysis.news and go to the barricade.online. Uh, and uh, to the respective YouTube channels of both of those media outlets. Thank uh, thank you very much again uh, to the viewers and to the uh, listeners and to Paul J for giving us this opportunity. Thank you, Maria, uh, for uh, being here. And uh, keep fighting, stay healthy. We'll see you again.